0: Good. Well, as Dave said, we are going to be continuing in Luke's gospel this afternoon, back in our series, On the Road with Jesus. And we're going to pick right up where we left off last Sunday. So we're, we are in Luke chapter 12, at verse 13. And Jesus has just been teaching the, the crowds around him on the, on the dangers of hypocrisy. Uh, he's spoken to them about the, the being aware of, that hypocrisy may creep into their lives where they profess faith and they look good on the surface. People may even look at them and think, wow, they're, you know, impressive Christians. They're a holy bunch. But actually under the surface, they're living selfish and godless lives. And Jesus has been teaching about that. He's been pointing out the importance of Our standing before God as as so much more important than our standing before people, that in the end there's only one whose view truly counts, and that's God and how we stand before him. And now he continues on speaking to the same group of people, and in in many ways he actually continues in much the same vein as he has been speaking, and so we're going to we're going to just jump straight in at twelve thirteen, and we're going to see hopefully how this, this thread of thought and what Jesus has been talking to them about, not living double standard lives but being consistent in who they are, not being hypocrites but actually living in the good of all that God has done for them, it, knowing and living in the good of the freedom that God has brought to them and to us too and so we're going to continue to kind of follow this line this thread that Jesus weaves over these illustrations and these discussions with people so from 12:13 they're there and we read this someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me now this is a slightly bizarre place to start given all that Jesus has just been saying But in the midst of him teaching, it seems that there was a guy in the crowd, we don't know the specifics, who was there with his brother, there's clearly a bereavement in the family, and the older brother had received all of the inheritance, and the younger brother is pretty miffed about it, and so shouts out while Jesus has been teaching the crowds about integrity and about how you live before God instead of live before people, in the midst of all of this, this guy's like, Jesus, tell him not to be tight and to share it with me. You think, what's like, it's interesting, right? Strange thing to do. We don't know the ins and outs, and presumably neither did Jesus. And actually, Jesus refuses to get embroiled in this domestic dispute. And instead instead of giving them a legalistic or rule-based response or taking sides and being like, yeah, that's right, older brother, you should give him some. Jesus uses it as an opportunity to address their hearts, both of their hearts, and actually the hearts of everyone else who's there listening. He uses it as a launch pad to talk about what really matters in life. And so we read from verse 14, Jesus said, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He's like, I'm not getting involved in your family dispute. From verse 15, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Remember, he's just told them, be on your guard against hypocrisy. And now he says, be on your guard against covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Jesus' answer speaks to both brothers simultaneously and also to us. Because it's a universal human experience that we're tempted to believe that if we just had that thing, then we'd be satisfied. Or we'd be more content. Or it would make us happier or more fulfilled. We're tempted to believe that more stuff will answer more of our problems. That, that's how advertising works, isn't it? It's the whole premise that advertising is, is predicated on, is the idea that if you have this thing, then you will be happier or healthier or better looking or more popular or more fulfilled in some way. That's, that's how advertising works. That's how we're sold things. Because we buy into it. We believe that that would be the case, that we would be happier or healthier or better looking or more popular if we had those things. That's why we buy stuff. And Jesus speaks into it here. And sadly, it's also often driven by envy. I don't know if you've noticed how much of our world and how much of advertising and how much of stuff is actually driven by envy covetousness that Jesus warns against here we see what someone else has and either we want it for ourselves because it looks pretty cool or we see what they have and we want one that's bigger than theirs so that they'll know we're wealthier than them or something else we justify it we reason in our heads even subconsciously you know If they have it, why shouldn't we? We deserve it. We begin to feel entitled. In fact, actually, when it comes down to it, we we probably deserve it more than they do. I think that was the line that this brother was almost hitting on with his older brother. He's like, this isn't fair. I want my bit. I want what I deserve. I want what I'm entitled to. Jesus wants us to know that this is a foolish pursuit. Life is about more than the abundance of stuff. That's what he says. But if we're honest, most of us struggle with it, don't we? If, if we're genuinely honest, most of us, at least some of the time, if not a lot of the time, struggle with this, with just a little bit of Greed for material gain, just the little subtle belief that we buy into the advertiser's pitch, that if we had that, maybe we would be more popular, maybe we would be happier. That's why scams work, right? That's how telephone scams work. They, They give you something that entices you, that taps into that belief and that greed it's actually why get rich quick schemes are so popular as crazy as most of them are if we actually step back and look at them you think that's like who would fall for that but we do right it's why in 2012 the stats have changed a little bit now but it's why in 2012 46 percent of adults in the uk did the national lottery regularly Almost half of all adults in our country did the National Lottery regularly because we believe that if we were a millionaire, well, that would change everything. Jesus wants us to know it's a foolish pursuit. Life is about more than stuff. And then he goes on to unpack and illustrate it a bit more for us. We read from verse 16, he told them a parable saying... The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, the younger brother who's just said about the inheritance in this moment was probably crying out, Give it away to your brother. Thus, I think he wanted Jesus to make that teaching point. That isn't actually the teaching point Jesus goes on to make. But anyway, he said, I have nowhere to store my crops. Verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. This picture that Jesus paints, this imaginary figure I, I want to suggest that he's actually very typical of a lot of people in 21st century Wokingham who have everything they need materially. Who think to themselves, maybe many who take early retirement. They think, 55, I've had a good innings. I'm gonna, you know, I'll take my early retirement. I've got a decent pension pot. I've got some investments. The mortgage is paid. I've I've got everything I need. They're like this guy who built bigger barns and stored it all up and said, hey, I'm provided for, I'm secure, I'm comfortable. And in their abundance of stuff, just like this man, they feel secure. Now this last year has shaken that for some, right? As redundancies grown and the job market's been unstable, but by and large, there are many who are in that position. Younger generations less so, but still, I would say a lot of the people we know, and many of us included, actually, it's what we're aspiring to. We we think that would be the dream, right? Have the mortgage paid off retire early, kick back, all my needs are met, I'm comfortable, I'm secure. That's the goal, isn't it? Financial security, comfort for the future, all our needs met, or so we think. The story continues, Jesus says from verse 20, But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's strong. It's a strong language that Jesus uses. But the point is clear. You can have everything this world has to offer. But if you've invested in that, instead of seeing the bigger picture and preparing for eternity, then it's a waste. If you've placed your security in that, Jesus says, fool, you can't take it with you, all that stuff, you can't take it with you. In the grand scheme, this life compared with eternity is is fleeting. And Jesus is saying, you'd be a fool. to to place all the emphasis and to make your focus being on making yourself comfortable here and now, setting yourself up for a life of comfort and luxury here and now and giving no thought to eternity. That's what this guy has done. His focus is on this present existence and it being comfortable and secure. But he's neglected to invest in his relationship with God. He's neglected to invest in eternity. He's neglected to invest where it really counts. Jesus continues in verse 22. He said to his disciples, Therefore, in the light of that, yeah, when there's a therefore, <laughs> you have to ask what it's there for, and generally it points back to what's just been said. Jesus has just talked about where we store up our treasure, where our security really is. Is it in the abundance of stuff, or is it in relationship with God? Is it, is it here and now, or is it eternal security? And Jesus says, in, in the light of that, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? God cares for his creation, he provides for all that he's made. We read on from 25, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do a smaller thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God is good. That's the resounding note that Jesus sounds in this series of illustrations, is that God is good and he provides for his creation. He provides for all he has made. And in the knowledge of that, we are to trust him and rest in him and invest in him and not in worrying about our material Provision. Now, understood correctly, this isn't a call to passivity, okay? Jesus isn't saying, like, so just sit on your bum and do nothing because God will provide. He cares for you. That's not what Jesus is saying, okay? Instead, it's a call to invest in the right things. It's really all about where your hope is, where your security is. What are you placing more stock in? In What are you leaning more of your weight on? Your pension fund, your bank balance, or your eternal hope in Christ? Which is the heavier. Are you you more anxious about your ability to provide for yourself and your family? Or are you trusting God that if you work hard, you're diligent, and you lean on him, what you need might not be what you want might not be what advertisers tell you you should have but what you need will be met in him here and now but more importantly for all eternity it's about your perspective see in this life if if being financially comfortable is what consumes you you get anxious about it then you end up on a constant quest for more because there's there's never enough, right? There's always more you could earn. There's always someone richer. There's always something else you could have. And if you're looking to material things to provide you with security and status, then Jesus is saying here, you're gonna end up anxious and worried and stressed. And that's crazy because through anxiety or worry, you can't even add a single hour to your life which isn't a great deal in the grand scheme of your life. In fact, actually, through anxiety and worry, you're more likely to shorten your life than extend it. And yet somehow that doesn't seem to stop us. But Jesus says, if you're seeking God, this is, this is the nub of what he's getting to. If you're seeking God, you'll realize that you don't actually need nearly so much. And you find contentment in what you do have. Points out the foolishness of being anxious about life. And he says in verse 32, following on from it, and this is just stunning Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This little verse gives huge perspective to all that Jesus has just been saying, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What's the kingdom? Well in this sense eternal hope. It's being with him, it's, it's him, it's relationship with him, it's intimacy with him, it's eternity with him. It's the riches of heaven. He says like you're worried about this short and fleeting life about what you're going to eat and what clothes you're going to put on your back. But your heavenly Father, it's his good pleasure to give you all the riches of heaven for all eternity. Like You're going to put those two things on a scale, like what should consume your focus? What should weigh heavier for you? What should give you comfort or a source of anxiety? Your short years on earth, which is what they are, compared with eternity, and worrying about what you're going to wear, or whether you have enough, or what's going to go on, or eternity in the perfect presence of God. Like, (laughs) there's no contest, is there? There shouldn't be. In fact, it gives great perspective back to those brothers at the start, right? They're squabbling over a few pounds of earthly inheritance that they can't take with them anyway. It's going to get left to someone else, ultimately. Jesus says that our Father in heaven gives us a far, far greater inheritance. Guys, quit squabbling about a couple of quid. Realize the riches of all you have for eternity in him you'll be a lot more open-handed with what you have here and now, and a lot less stressed about it. And when we know that, it shifts our priorities. Jesus carries on then, in the light of that, to say, sell your possessions. You think, whoa, hang on a minute, Jesus. How did we get there? Huh. Well, if your perspective is right, if your hope is secure, then this is an obvious step in Jesus's, Logical flow through this passage. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old. He's not talking about getting a good quality leather wallet. He's talking about investing in heaven, in eternity, in your relationship with him. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, in those who have received the hope of the gospel, those who know that their eternity is secure in Christ, those who know that life isn't found in the abundance of possessions. Those who know that God provides for all he's made. You look at the grass and the birds and it testifies of the goodness of a father who loves to provide for his creation. Those who understand that the most perfect and complete fulfillment of God's provision is found in eternity with him, in being co-heirs with Christ forever, in intimacy with him. Those people have a much looser grip on their stuff here and now, and a much tighter grip on their eternal hope. I tell you what, I want to be one of them. Yeah? That's my prayer for us as a church, that we'd be people who are so utterly captivated by the hope of glory in Christ that, that everything else It's just a means to an end. It's a tool to serve people with and bless people with, not something to be hoarded up for selfish gain or to give ourselves the illusion of comfort or security, but instead to be used for the glory of God and the good of those around us. Your relationship with stuff, whether you like it or not, says an awful lot about your relationship with God. if you're not looking for stuff to define you or provide you with security, then you're much more willing and ready to give stuff away. If you're not looking for it to meet a need in you that should be met in Christ Jesus, then you're very free to be generous and not to be anxious. And as you do that, you invest in eternity and you lean more and more of your weight on God and your perspective starts to get things in their right place and in their right order eternity begins to weigh more heavily on the scales of your life than your decision making for this fleeting moment and with all that in mind with that as the backdrop about eternity as weighing more heavily for us about our security being there with him rather than here with money in the bank, with your treasure, your heart, your focus on his kingdom. Jesus now kind of shifts. And he transitions to say, with with all that in mind, be ready. With all that in mind, stay alert. Live ready to step into eternity. If that's where your focus is, then you're gonna be ready to join him. You're gonna be ready for his return. Keep focused there so that you're ready. And this is what he says from verse 35. He says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Guys, that is what we are, okay? We are waiting. We've got work to do while we're waiting to fulfill the Great Commission, to share the gospel, to proclaim good news, to see captives set free, to see people baptized and discipled into obedience with Jesus, but we're also these people waiting for the return of our master. Jesus is coming back. And this picture he paints for them, he says, Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in a second walk or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. This is, this is an amazing picture. Jesus is saying, if you're fixed on eternity and your hope there, and you're living for the glory of God and the good of those around you, you're going to be ready for when Christ returns, and return he will. And if he returns and finds you ready, this is what he says he says, he will dress himself for service, and he will have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. This is stunning. He's just saying about himself that, that Christ himself, the, the master, the king of glory, will serve those who are alert and awake and waiting for his return. Those who build their lives on him instead of the hollow and empty promises of this present life, he will, he will serve them in heaven, with the richest of foods. With himself. He gives of himself. This is stunning. But there's a but. Jesus carries on. But know this that if the master of the house had known at which hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is saying, you don't know <laughs> when he's going to return. Okay, don't, don't try and leave it to the last minute. Don't build your life in comfort here and now and think just at the last moment, I'll, I'll turn and place my hope in him and, and lean my weight into him and find my security in him. Don't don't wait until that moment because you don't know when that's going to be. And like the guy who was storing up in bigger barns, and God comes and says, Full, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Jesus says, The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, but He is coming. This is a sober warning. Don't assume you've got more time. We can live, can't we, as though we've got all the time in the world to to deal with that issue. To to get our priorities straight in terms of money or some other issue. But Jesus warns us here. I want to ask you are you ready? Are you ready for his return? We be one who would throw the door open and and greet him gladly as he returns, knowing that he'll serve and bless. You're gonna be shocked on the back foot. Oh my goodness. Jesus' disciples were understandably slightly concerned about what Jesus is saying. And so Peter, we read from verse 41, kind of catching the drift of what Jesus is saying, says, Lord. Are you telling this parable for us or for all? (laughs) It's kind of like diffusion of responsibility maybe. Like, is this just for us or or is this for everyone? He wants to know. Does this apply to me? Does it apply? Who does this apply to? Do I have to really take this warning seriously? I love it. He, He just wants to be sure who it applies to. He's like, can I just check Jesus? Is this just us or is it everyone? Is this something they should pass on to others? Because others are going to need to heed this warning too. Or is it just for them? He needs to know. It's not a stupid question. It's actually a really wise question, right? Because if this warning is for everyone, then Peter wants to know, like, gosh, we need to let others know. You need to be ready. We need to understand that too. And so Jesus' answer is important, and Jesus actually answers by expanding. He doesn't say, it's for you, or it's for everyone, but he does by filling it out. So we read on, Jesus says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants, And to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know, and he will cut him to pieces and put him with the unfaithful. This is Jesus' first half of Jesus' answer to Peter. And this is the Peter, it's for you, bit of his answer. Jesus begins with the manager in the household. Someone in a position of leadership, in a position of authority and as Jesus answers this, is for Peter and the rest of the 12. But it's also in time for those in positions of leadership in the church. Notice part of the responsibility there that the master is left with in the household. The household manager has been left to give them their portion of food at the proper time. He has a responsibility to discharge for the care and well-being of those others in the house. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does what they're supposed to do. <laughs> who continues in obedience. Who makes sure that others in the household are well-fed and cared for. But the one who abandons his master's ways and begins to indulge his own selfish desires and living for himself with no regard to the master's instructions at the expense of others in the house. He doesn't, no longer, I don't know if you notice. he's no longer feeding them at the proper time. Instead, he's eating too much and drinking too much. And in his drunkenness and his selfishness and his rejection of the master's command to him, he actually begins to beat and mistreat the servants in the house. The one who does that will be punished ever so severely when the master returns as a sober warning. Sadly, you don't have to look far to find examples of leaders in the church throughout history and even today who have behaved like this manager. Should never be so. Instead of heeding scripture's call to shepherd the flock to care for people and provide for the people of God instead they've abused their position important that we understand this warning instead of laying up treasure in heaven through sacrificial love and care of others they've made themselves rich and comfortable here on earth at the expense of others instead of for the good of others and Jesus says there's there's like a warning and comfort here right there's a warning if it's you but there's comfort too, that there'll be justice, that those who have behaved in that way, who have treated people that way, who have abused others, Jesus says, when Christ returns, they will be judged so severely. In fact, Jesus seems to say fairly clearly here that they will have no part in the kingdom, that they will be put out. What does he say? He says, they will be put with the unfaithful those who are outside of the household. And then he carries on from verse 47. And this is the, it's for everyone portion of his answer. He says from verse 47, the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and who did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus is saying those who fail to live in accordance with the master's will, who live in rebellion, will be punished. They don't get away with it. Those who know, those who've heard the gospel and who've failed to respond, Those who've heard the word of God, who know it and have failed to live it out, will be dealt with more severely than those who've lived ignorant in their disobedience. Jesus, it's clear, right? (laughs) Those who have been entrusted much, much will be expected of them. If you know what is right to do, if you understand what God's word teaches, and you knowingly and willfully live in disobedience to that, you will be dealt with accordingly. And Jesus continues as he's essentially done for the, the rest of the two chapters that we've been in to insist that there are essentially two groups of people here. There are those who are waiting in obedience for the master's return and those who are not those who are storing up treasure here and those who are storing up treasure in heaven. Those who are living for the applause of man and those who are living for the approval of God. We, we go back to what he said in chapter 11. Those who are not with me are against me. Jesus continues to say there are essentially two groups There are those who accept Christ and those who reject him. There are those who respond in obedience and those who live in rebellion. And Jesus now continues to emphasize that point. And we read on from verse 49. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus here is referring to the cross. He knows he's headed to the cross. He's already in anguish knowing what awaits as he bears the weight of our sin on himself as he takes on himself the penalty for our sin the death that we rightly deserve and as he also knows what the outcome of his death and resurrection will be for some it will be life and for others actually it will not be he carries on and these is. This is some of those verses, this is this whole passage, to be honest, are some of those verses where, like, when we feel a bit more squeamish, we think, oh, I wish she hadn't said that, Jesus. Like, I, I wish you hadn't said that. This is this from verse 51. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. This is what he's been talking about, there are two, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either in obedience or you're in rebellion. No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. The cross, Jesus Christ, the cross is the most divisive event in all of history. And also the most unifying, all at once. See, For those who hope in Christ, they're united. The most glorious, profound unity that you could experience, both with God and with man. And yet, for those who reject, it's a different story. For those who trust in Christ, the cross means freedom. It means victory over sin and death. It means life and life eternal with him. But for those who continue to reject him, they will ultimately receive death. There is no middle ground here. 1 Corinthians one eighteen says this, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. 1 Peter 2.8 tells us that to those who are not being saved, Christ, Jesus, is a stumbling stone. And a rock of offence. They stumble because they disobey the word. This should serve as a warning and a wake up. The message of Christ is divisive. It's, it's a wake up even for us as Christians, right? Because we, we want it to be more nice and fluffy than this, generally. But the message of Christ is divisive. Jesus was very unambiguous about that fact. It's not going to be universally accepted or even tolerated, let alone liked. And because of that, if we profess it, neither are we. You need to know that, right? If you profess that Christ is the only way, that's not going to be a universally popular thing to say. Guys, we need to unhitch ourselves from the desperate desire to be liked of and approved of by everyone. Because if we follow Christ, we won't be. Just as he wasn't and he isn't. Knowing that there would be people who would reject him, Jesus gives a final point. And this is where we're going to conclude now because right now, this is heavy, isn't it? Yeah? This is quite a heavy Passage of scripture. It's full of warnings. It's quite sobering. And Jesus carries on. He gives, he gives an appeal and a warning as he concludes this section. We read from verse 54 He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. We like to think we're quite good at predicting the weather. It's not been so easy recently. But, and so it happens. Apparently these guys were better than us. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there'll be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Jesus is saying to them, God, I've given you some clear warnings. My life, my ministry has all been about pointing you to the kingdom of God and showing you how you get to participate You've had some clear warnings. I've given you signs. I've proclaimed the kingdom. I've told you that whoever is not with me is against me. I've just warned you about the judgment that will come for those who store up treasure on earth here instead of treasure in heaven. I've warned you about those who live for the approval of people instead of living before a holy God. I've warned you about people who are driven by selfish motives instead of living in obedience to God with their hope set on eternity. And you're ignoring me still. You're like the servants who think you've got time. Like, yeah, I know, we need to deal with it, but we'll get there. Like, we've got time. I mean, he's not come back yet. I've got years left. I'll I'll repent and stop it another time. Jesus continues. And Why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Jesus uses a court picture for his final warning of this section, a warning of the judgment that awaits. That if if it's not dealt with, and you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And he says here, you'll be put in prison. And you'll never get out until you've paid the very last penny. And the debt of our sin, the weight of our sin, is such that we will never pay it off. And Jesus uses this picture, but he's, he's using it as a warning, as an encouragement too. He's saying, don't wait until it's too late and you're stood before the judgment seat of God, having to give an account for your sin and rebellion. Settle it before you get there. You know, as he says that, he says, make an effort to settle with him on the way. How do we do that? Jesus is saying, settle it now. Find forgiveness now. Accept the offer of forgiveness in Christ. To be clothed in his righteousness instead of yours. To be judged on his merit instead of yours. To accept him taking the penalty on your behalf before it's too late. Now you'd think that people would listen after all that Jesus has shared in the preceding couple of chapters. You'd think that perhaps after all of this they'd grasp it, but instead they try to make themselves look good. <laughs> this is just crazy. And the reason that the way they do it is they point out some others who they assume must have done something much worse than them and therefore will be judged far more harshly than them. They deflect. Verse 13, chapter 13, one, there was some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices. But they hear this warning Jesus gives them. And they think, well, at least our penalty won't be as bad as theirs. And so they bring up this group who'd been killed by Pilate whilst they were sacrificing to God. This atrocity would have been known about. And it was generally believed that those who suffered some kind of calamity like this, some kind of atrocity in this way, were actually receiving punishment for God from some extraordinary sin they'd committed. They were the real rotters. It may have been hidden sin, but they were the bad ones. That's what people thought. It seems that these people's motive, as they hear the warning of Jesus, instead of taking it on themselves and receiving his offer of life instead of coming to him repentant for forgiveness they simply try and deflect as they squirm under conviction for their sin and rebellion they deflect well you know at least we're not as bad as those ones Jesus, did you hear about them they must have been real rotters how often can we be tempted to to think and speak in this way to try and pull down others to make ourselves look good to Think of everyone else as the one who has the issue and not ourselves. But Jesus has none of it. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All those 18, Jesus brings up another tragedy. All those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus gives them another example and effectively says, you're no different to them. (laughs) You've sinned. You've fallen short. You need forgiveness. You're going to face judgment. Stop comparing yourself to others and trying to justify yourself unless you repent, unless you hope in Christ, unless you are hidden in Christ then you will perish. There will be a just judgment. And yet, right now, it's not too late. Right now, there's hope. And that's where Jesus concludes. He told this parable. A man had a fig tree implanted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. He said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig round it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well, good. But if not, then cut it down. A fruitless vine is a sad picture, isn't it? It's like it... it, it, it it's not fulfilling the purpose for which it was designed. This fig tree was designed to, to bear fruit. And it's failing to do what it was purposed to do, what it was designed for. It's a it's a sad picture, but it's an image of those who reject God's design for humanity. Who, who choose to go their way instead of his, who think they know better than him see god designed us to flourish and be fruitful to bear fruit but the only way that we realize that is in relationship with him and in living according to his commands god god gave us commands to live by not for our restriction or our limitation or our oppression but for our true freedom for our flourishing for our fruitfulness And when we reject his ways and we choose to go our own, when we live in rebellion against him, then we're like a fruitless vine. And in the end, this illustration, Jesus says, the fruitless vine will be cut down. But today is a day of mercy. Judgment will come and we don't know when. Like the wealthy man, your your life may be demanded of you. Sooner than you think, suddenly. Suddenly. Like the servants in the house, the master may return suddenly like a thief in the night. But right now, it's not too late. The vine dresser said, let me dig around it and fertilize it. Give it some time. Allow it to bear fruit. The reason that you're here, the reason that you're breathing, the reason this world is still spinning on its axis is that God is sustaining, that in his patience, he is giving time for people to turn to him and to live in obedience to him, to receive his offer of life and to live in response to that and bear fruit. This is a day of grace. Second Peter 3, 9 tells us that Christ is not slow in returning, as some might think of it, but that he's delaying in order to give people time to respond. He's exercising patience to give us time to respond. His desire is that none should perish. And so like the vine dresser who gives another year for the vine to bear fruit, Jesus is giving time. But it won't last forever. So I want to encourage you. We're going to sing one final song. Johnny, I wonder whether you could come and lead us. But as we do this, I want to, encourage you to respond maybe you know that you've, you've never really placed your full hope in Jesus, you've never come repentant to ask for forgiveness and you're like a fruitless vine you're anxious about many things, none of it what really counts you come find forgiveness. Come, find hope. Come, find life in the finished work of Jesus today. Come and begin to know what it means to bear fruit and fruit that lasts. Or maybe, I guess this is probably more of us, you you know that your focus has just begun to shift. That, That you become preoccupied with the stuff this world has to offer. You've begun to place your hope more there than in Christ. Maybe there's a particular area of sin in your life and you're like the servant who just thinks, like, my master's not coming anytime soon. I'll keep going for now. There'll be another day to repent. There'll be another day to ask for forgiveness. There'll be another day to turn and live in, obedience to Christ, I, I, I want to carry on doing this for now, there'll be another day I, I want you to heed Jesus' warnings you don't know but right now there's a moment of grace there's a moment to calm and find forgiveness hey, let's stand together shall we